Welcome to SimCast, the higher education simulation podcast. My name's Lawrence Hill, and I'm the chair of the simulation group at UEA Norwich. Hello, everyone. My name is Tony Jeremy. I'm the academic lead for simulation-based education at UEA Norwich. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring this idea of safety in simulation. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So I often hear when I have conversations with people about simulation, the, the, the topic of it's always safer than doing it in clinical practice, doing the real thing often comes up. And I just wonder how much truth there is in that when we actually pick apart what safety and simulation actually means. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a little bit of a think, didn't we? And we kind of identified three main areas that we think sort of safety or hazards actually need to be navigated in order to make simulation as safe as possible. Yeah, that's right. And and I guess we're looking at safety as a as a much, much wider topic in some areas. So you might argue that you know, is that safe? Isn't it safe? But I think sometimes it would, you, you, you consider safety as an aspect of that. But definitely there's the patient. That's the most apparent one. Yeah. And let's start there. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Talking about patient safety, because that's the thing, like, you know, people often say, you know, oh yeah, no, no patients were harmed in the making of the simulation. Mm. So it must be safe. Um, but it's not quite that straight, that straightforward because we do things in simulation that potentially impact on patient safety, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you could, like you say, you could argue and say that at that moment in time, if a patient wasn't involved in the simulation, the the level of risk of harm happening towards that patient is is low. Yeah, like it's safe. It's safer that we practice needle chest decompression on this mannequin yeah. than on a human. Clearly. However, if you you if you involve a, another human being in place of that patient, then there's always a risk on them. But for me, one thing I, I think... Not that we're advocating decompressing another human <laughs> no, but, as part of an learning experience. But, but I, I do advocate the use of confederates and actors in, yes. in many simulations where invasive procedures aren't needed. Yeah, and so that's kind of one of the second the second area that we're going to talk about today, isn't it, is the role of faculty and kind of confederate safety in simulation. So that's kind of topic two. And topic three is... The learners. Learners themselves, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So patient safety, yeah, so... Whilst the patient might not be directly involved, for me, if your simulation has potential flaws or latent conditions in them, then what we can do is inadvertently teach bad practice mm. in simulation. And then that might then lead to a patient safety incident uh, further down the, the track, if you like. Yeah, so there's there's like information content integral to the design of the simulation, which needs to be right, needs to be theoretically correct, yeah, it needs to be contemporary, it needs to be up to date. Otherwise, we introduce latent risk by teaching old or out-of-date practice. Yeah, and sometimes it might mean that that's the difference between you having the most up-to-date kit and equipment, which obviously is expensive. Yeah. Uh, if you've got a simulation centre, it might mean having to routinely update things. But it's also the, the non-expensive things sometimes. So forgetting to put gloves on during a simulation. Yeah. It's a big bugbear of mine. You really don't like that, do you? That, that really annoys you. And, and and yet it's something that happens so frequently because it's just like, oh, it's a simulation, we don't need to put the gloves on. But actually, in this situation, if we were practicing in clinic, yeah. we would have gloves on. Yeah. So you practice... Or washing your hands. And, you know, you might be in the simulation centre that we run, for example. We Do we have sinks in every room? 
I don't know if we do. I don't think we do. Mm. So you might just have the luck of the draw. You might be in a room where there's, and it's kind of, oh, I'd wash my hands first. And But it's, it's such an integral, important yeah, step of that process. And then, and then there's the stuff that we introduce as facilitators, like the time distortion. Okay, that's the end of a two-minute cycle. Well, actually, there's something quite important about knowing what it feels like to do two minutes of chest compressions before the next rhythm yeah, check. I, getting knackered. Getting knackered and having that time for people to realise and for your team leader to go, actually, do you know what, Tony, you're starting to maybe tire a little bit on the chest. I need to think about how I'm going to change something. But we deprive learners of that opportunity to do that if we truncate time. Yeah. And we, we, we see when simulation or the equivalent is done in other high-risk industries, they will play things out in real time. And probably in healthcare, we cut the most corners when it when it comes to that. And of course, there's various different reasons and challenges for that when you're trying to get through. We've talked about this in a previous podcast, when you're trying to get through large scale simulation, yep. with lots of numbers, something has to give and often it's a sort of a time fidelity thing. There's an efficiency thoroughness trade off, yes. which is um, something that you know happens all the time in, in healthcare education that we need to be mindful of. So practicing wrong, basically, is is kind of a major cause of, of a major risk, I think, around a, a risk that needs to be navigated in terms of yeah. safety and simulation. And, and picking up bad habits. Yeah, exactly. It's like when you drive a car, you know, you're, you're practicing for a test, you do it all by the book when you start driving it all the time. And if you, you know, you could do that in simulation, you could just pick up these bad habits mm. and then that becomes commonplace in, in clinical practice. And hopefully we can, but by talking about it, we can we can hope to sort of get rid of some of that practice. Hopefully. And And one way that we can do that, and I think another way that we were discussing before the podcast about how risks we need to navigate in terms of simulation safety is how we go about addressing those those things that occur in the debrief so it's using the debrief sufficiently well to pick up those 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 areas of practice that need to be addressed yeah and it's hard sometimes isn't it you know if someone's had an absolute nightmare in the simulation and they've got everything wrong or even if they've done something really really well but there is a certain aspect that has to be unpicked. You, you know, having those really sort of difficult, sort of spicy conversations in the debrief takes an experienced facilitator to do mm. that, doesn't it? It does. It's particularly in undergraduate simulation where we are on the one hand trying to to teach learners to occupy a kind of a professional niche and a professional role. And on the other as well, trying to build their confidence as practitioners. So we, we're kind of always having to juggle them seeing themselves in this role and being able to handle all of this complexity um, and and also at the same time have a degree of confidence doing it. And so it's difficult sometimes. You don't particularly want to crush somebody and you, you should never do that intentionally in a simulation, but it can feel like by focusing on the safety critical point that you're kind of undermining everything else that learner's done in that sim. And that can be hard on them. Yeah, so we're now we're at an avenue where we can go down two other potential routes. You're talking here about the safety of the learner yeah. as part of the debrief, but also the safety encouraged by the faculty member. Let's, let's, go, to, let's go to learners. Let's okay. go to learners, yep. I think. Let's put the learner in the middle of this sandwich. So for me, when we talk about the safety of the learner, this is where the most probably widely studied topic around safety and simulation comes up, which is psychological safety of yep. the people taking part in the simulation. Yeah, psychological safety. So what do we mean by that? Well, I don't know what anyone means by that, because I personally think that simulation is probably, of all of the learning environments that healthcare students go into, it is probably the least safe psychologically environment that learners go into. But I think what is generally understood and meant by psychological safety is a sense of not feeling 
threatened or judged or uh, in any way undermined or pressurized into being something that you're not. Yeah, and the, and the Center of Medical Simulation in uh, in uh, in the US have this basic assumption, which mm. is something we've certainly adopted. We think it's a great starting point. You know, it says is that everyone taking parts, knowledgeable, capable, intelligent human beings, and want to do their best. Importantly, regardless of outcome, yeah. particularly in simulation, and I think that's a great place to start with. It's an excellent place to start with in terms of establishing a, a kind of a learning contract between faculty and and learners, flattening a hierarchy and giving the opportunity to say, Do you know what, we really want this to go well. We we really want this to be successful as well. But I think reminding learners that it is a learning event and it's not an assessment is an important part of establishing that degree of security. Okay, so my question to you then, with your experience, particularly dealing with the kind of learners that we have, mm-hmm. which are often pre-registration mm-hmm. learners, right at the beginning of their career, clinically inexperienced, how well does that, even when you use the basic assumption, how well does that translate to what the learner then perceives to happen in, in simulation? I think, it's, I think it transfers at a semantic level but not at a, an actual experiential level. I think, I think learners can cognitively say, yes, I know that I'm not being assessed, but I don't think they feel like they're not being assessed yeah. often. And I think it's, it's, down, it's down to us to continuously, it's not just about making that statement and saying, we know that everyone's here to them and they want to improve. If you then back that up with some kind of, you know, in, inherently judgmental piece of feedback, rather than exploratory debriefing. You've just undone all of your hard work. You might as well have not bothered. You might as well have just said, to be honest, we're going to judge the hell out of you. Um, Deal with it. Yeah, and I think one of the problems that we also have in higher education is we're often using practical assessment, so OSCEs and that kind of thing, and it's just blurring the the, the boundaries continuously. So I, I think maintaining creating an environment in which psychological safety for learners exists is uh, like a like an ongoing process of embodying being the kind of facilitator that you want to be and that yeah. learners want and need you to be yeah. depending on their level so it is about you know having a shared vision um, for what the simulation will look like it is about being compassionate with them and it is about you know have, wearing your heart on your sleeve and having integrity and saying actually I'm with you on this journey and I want you to get better and learn yeah and one of the things that <clears throat> we've quickly has become apparent to us and a bit of kind of extra homework homework that we need to do is with our learners is to get them to understand what simulation is mm-hmm. and the kind of things they're going to experience the conversations that they're likely to have in debrief and have that as almost a, a prerequisite video or some kind of media that they digest so that when they turn up to their first skills or simulation session they've got a better understanding of, of what's on the table yeah we, indeed we, we we often track attract practical hands-on learners and and the idea and the concept is they learn best by doing and yet we put them into this high pressure situation, mm. which they probably weren't expecting mm. straight away. No, and at least even if they were expecting it, they might not have any frame of reference for what it actually was going to be like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that is something that we, we're going to do. Um, and we, we could probably make that available on the pod as well at some point in the future too. So any other challenges that we face with our pre-registration learners, would you say? I think... It's kind of tied up in psychological safety, but it's getting that balance between threat and challenge right. Okay. And I think that's really important. And that comes down to what we were saying in a, in a previous podcast about the learning outcomes and how that really must drive all of the the activity that you're expecting learners to do and making sure that they are um, that they are aligned 
with the learner's level and they're aligned with their kind of expectations. So I think getting that bit right is, is part of navigating that kind of hazardous area between threat and challenge because you don't want it to be too easy. There wants to be a sense of accomplishment and mm. achievement and uh, and stretch, but not to the point of breaking or not to the point of, not beyond the point of acceptable discomfort. <laughs> like there should be, like learning shouldn't be entirely comfortable. Like, because if you're asking somebody to change cognitively and to develop their competencies and their understanding, you have to stretch it a little bit not to the point where it becomes existentially threatening for them and mm. their sense of self. Mm. And uh, the, the, the difficult thing, I guess, is who makes that judgment call? Who makes that decision? <laughs> I've been in a situation where I've run a, what I consider to be a relatively low risk, straightforward simulation yeah. that actually some learners found incredibly challenging. And it depends on their previous experience. Yeah. I had an experience with you running some simulation with operating department practice students where the learner had had a negative experience in practice of being yeah, tripped. And, and they thought we were tripping them up, yeah. And yeah. they flatly refused to, and you could see there was this genuine level of kind of alertness and fear that came over this learner. Just their whole persona shifted mm. when we said, oh, could you just go and get us something? Because we wanted to, we wanted to introduce an element. We wanted to move move a human for a for, yeah. a, for a for a, for a mannequin. <laughs> we were essentially trying to get a, a human being involved to do the patient assessment, A3 assessment, so it's more authentic and real. Yeah. Then we had to do an invasive airway management. So we yeah. wanted to swap over the mannequin for the uh, for the, for the human. And we were just like, can you just nip out while we do this behind the scenes? And they were like, absolutely kind of, not. I've ne I, I left a patient once. I will never leave a patient again after I was so badly yeah. ridiculed for this yeah, last I time in practice. Uh, from that thinking, what I thought was a kind of a yeah a cool and <laughs> interesting yeah. way to ch change up the simulation. But you yeah. know what? Like another another learner in a, in a, in a different frame of mind with a different set of perspectives would have just been like, oh, okay, it's part yeah. of the sim. And yeah, they'd, have, yeah. they'd have gone and they'd have come back and then they'd have been like, oh, there's a mannequin here now, so something's changed. So that brings us on to, I guess, faculty safety. Yeah, it and, does. And for me, it's not just about the physical or the psychological safety. It's about the safety of being a, a facilitator and having that weight of the simulation going well on your shoulders as well. Mm. So that was a really good experience for me of thinking I planned everything out and actually when I was playing out in real time, there were all sorts of challenges that I had to negotiate that I didn't realise. God, you know what, as well, this would be an amazing time if you've had an experience of organising a simulation that took a turn, <laughs> yes. psychologically speaking, uh, and just just, to, just tell us a little bit about that. We'd love to hear about your experiences and to see how you negotiated or, or what happened. It would be great to hear about that, wouldn't it? So, for me, risk of simulation failure. Yeah, that is a huge one, isn't it? For faculty, it is, yeah. Massive. Because how much time and effort have you put into this simulation? Yeah, and I've, I've, and again, you know, again, we've talked in a previous video about the difference between sort of basic part-task training and going into sort of simulated patient scenarios and full-scale simulation. And the higher you go up that kind of complexity and simulation fidelity ladder, if you like, the more risk of failure you have or something going not not to plan or, or in worst case scenario catastrophically wrong yeah like the more complicated a machine gets the more likely one of the individual components will break down right so like yeah the more complexity you introduce the greater the risk of failure and then simulation is only theoretically safer 
than doing something in practice if the simulation actually takes place. So what can we do to try and prevent those accidents from happening? Well, well-planned sim is good. Yeah, as we've said in a previous podcast around using a kind of a model to try and ensure that you've got all of the pieces of the puzzle in, in good working order. And testing it. Yeah. So, something that I'm not particularly good at, again, from time constraints, running it through, having a dry run, maybe having faculty members undertake the role to test it, evaluate it, see if we can tease Simulating your simulation, you know, seeing whether you, it kind of runs roughly to time, roughly how long it takes, trying to put yourself in the learner's perspective. But again, tricky, but, you know, a useful thing that you could do. And there's always, again, if you run it one time, you have to repeat it again. There are always lessons to learn, even if you don't have time to, uh, you know, to practice it. Well, it's, it's never going to come out the same way twice. But but ways that you can try and prevent that from failure from, from happening, I suppose, is by having you know, communication early in advance, what, you know, your kind of go and no go criteria might be, um, because you, you know, you need to be able to let people know you, you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you can't run your simulation and you've got all your learners turning up because that's represents mm. a risk kind of, you know, reputationally, doesn't it for your department yeah. and for yeah. you as an individual, um, and you know, a cost to those individuals that have made their way in. So I think just kind of communicating clearly as possible and trying to work out what your risks are ahead of time. So other members of faculty that might be involved, you may have someone playing the role of the confederate. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had a confederate that's gone rogue? That's gone rogue? Yes, I have. You they've, have. They've, they don't necessarily follow the script, even with good planning. And sometimes that's good. Being able to ad lib it, I think, is, is good. But actually derailing the simulation because you've taken some off course uh, and not adding value to it. Is, is always a potential risk. But it's, it's normally always very well-meaning, isn't it? Yeah. From the faculty member, from the confederate, they're always like, yeah, I thought it'd be really good to like give them a curveball. And you're like, thanks. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that was great. That was really curvy. I, had, a, I was... had an experience recently, actually, where I was facilitating a simulation and I was in, an, in the debrief space remotely. The simulation was going on in another space and it was coming to time. So I went through and I stood by the, the, the door window and kind of gave that kind of, we need to stop the simulation. And it was with my ODP students who had a well, sterile we, field. And so they de-sterilized the sterile field to stop oh. the simulation. And of course, this this uh, student was horrified and thought, oh, th- oh you know, no. this is part of the simulation. You're, you're trying yeah. to trip me up. Yeah. And so I had to kind of unpack that in the debrief. I, a thought, bit. I thought you were going to say then that like, you were like, we need to bring the simulation no, no. to an end. And then like your confederate just, Argh. No, but... Just um, <laughs> But yeah, but so you know, from, again, from that that simulation facilitator's point of view, they were ending the scenario by process of desterilizing the sterile field and, and contaminating yeah. it. Oh, but actually, yeah, for see. the learner, they thought you know this was part of the, the simulation. You again going back to that, we're trying to trip them up rather than getting the best out of them. From yeah, learning. and you know that that conversation, about, you know that that trying to trip them up, that that feeling of. Um, Oh, I don't know what the word is, apprehension of the learner that, that you're trying to do something. Um, and that their kind of psychological safety is mirrored with the psychological security and safety of uh, uh, of actors in simulation, but also of faculty members. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've run some quite challenging mental health simulation for paramedic students. And we've touched on themes like coercive control and end of life care and suicidal ideation. 
And a colleague of mine um, ran a simulation eight times over the course of a day where he was a, a suicidal man who'd made a decision that he was going to end his life and he had a plan. And the moment the paramedics left and he had full capacity, he was going to put that plan into action and he was going to complete suicide. And the learning for the students was incredibly profound and very, very poignant. And for the guy who works in my team, is one of the paramedic team, it was, it flattened him, completely mm. flattened him. It, it, it was emotionally and physically exhausting to, to play that role. I mean, it's exhaust. I mean, doing that many simulations in a day is exhausting as it is. Yeah. Let alone the you know the charged topic that you were going through. And and that and that's another that's another you know kind of question. You know, is simulation safe? Or well, how how safe is it to be that fatigued at the end of a teaching day? You wouldn't necessarily kind of try to run an eight hour lecture all day. And yeah. I would argue that you know simulation is a is a is a you know requires. Um, very high level of cognition to be able to do it effectively you have to be actively listening and observing and thinking about how you're going to plan and challenge a whole day's worth of simulation activity even if you're instructing and and just debriefing is it can be exhausting utterly exhausting so i I think and so yeah your last group arguably are not getting the same experience that your your first or second group might mm. be. Maybe well, that's that's reflective of clinical practice as well, I don't know, you know, the so. end of a 12-hour shift. But what what happens in simulation that doesn't happen in clinical practice for faculty is this idea that I've kind of talked about and I've thought about and spoken to colleagues about is this idea of repetition dementia. Mm. And I don't mean that in a in a kind of negative way, but the number of times I've run simulations across a day and, and Which by group the sort, was that? Well, yeah, did you say that or was that mm, not sure. And that is really unsettling because then you're exposed yeah. as, a, as, a, as, the, as the sort of the lead or the, you know, the tutor, uh, even if you're there as a facilitator. So, I mean, we talked earlier about flattening the hierarchy. Do you just flip it on its head and use that as, a, as, a, as another opportunity to go, I'm human? I, I do, to be honest. I, I do try and kind of maintain integrity in that rather than kind of like wing it. I will say, you know, it's 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 been a long day of simulation, hasn't it, guys? <laughs> you know, like uh, this is real. You know, this this level of fatigue is real. Um, so, yeah, I generally just try and okay. be honest about that. Good. One area that we don't do much of in our simulation centre, uh, because we do have a simulation centre, is and another area which is particularly risky for uh, safety is in-situ simulation. Yes. So the, the, what we're talking about here is simulation that takes place in the actual clinical environment. So in a real hospital, in a real pre-hospital setting, mm-hmm. wh- wherever you're, you're talking about, not yeah. in a simulation centre. Mm. So whilst we don't do it, I think we do need to talk about it because it's important f- for safety. It's an important facet of simulation. Simulation as kind of diagnostic tool, if you will, like how do systems work when the work is, you know, operating as normal and you can't do that in a simulation center because whilst we have environments that look and feel like a clinical space for example it's not the same layout you no. know the cupboards aren't in the same place that they would be on a on a ward in a in a busy hospital in any part of no and there's not region. like a throng of background activity and there's not real people walking around with real world actual problems it's much more constrained than that um so yeah in situ simulation is there to capture work as done in real settings, like you say, in clinic, uh, in any whatever that clinical environment might be, or potentially as a sort of diagnostic tool in some other kind of commercial setting, which is something that we've been exploring recently, which has been very interesting. Um, and we'll come back to that, I think, in a, in a future podcast. But, um, but yeah, so 
within that environment of running simulation in situ, there's a number of kind of risks that need to be navigated, right? Yeah, so it, 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 it depends on how your organization or environment runs that in situ simulation. Some, for example, will have still have simulation equipment, maybe even simulation props, maybe even drugs which are placebo. So there's always a risk that those kind of things can get confused and mm-hmm. actually be given to a patient. Mm-hmm. And then we are looking at actual harm to a patient during simulation. And then I guess there's the the potential risk of whether you run the simulation or not in the first place. Yeah. You know, so you, we even talk about it here in simulation center is having a go or no go criteria. And that's even more important in a, in a in situ simulation for us, it might be, we might not have enough staff to run yeah. it in clinical practice. It might be, it's now dangerous. Yeah. Like level of pressure on service is critical. We yes. cannot, we cannot justify this, you know, morally, ethically, it wouldn't be right to have resources committed to running a simulation. And what about everyone else? So we talk a lot about the patients, but obviously in, in a in a busy acute hospital setting, for example, you've got members of the public. Yeah, absolutely. And the, patients, the patients and users, just normal people, staff, family members yeah. just wandering around, wondering about what's happening to their loved one. And if you're running simulation in situ, you won't have the opportunity to brief everybody that's about to come into that department exactly what's happening. You can put up banners, you can put up signs, you can tell people as they come in. But there is a very real risk that you're going to have unwitting participants in your simulation who will stumble across something and just don't understand why it's happening and might be concerned about that. So again, we, we're kind of touching on the, the, the topic here or the, the subject is, as the level of uh, complexity and realism goes up, therefore the, the level of risk potentially goes up mm. as well. It definitely does. Um, so I think with with what we've talked about, one of the, the things is about psychological or about safety in simulation is that it isn't just psychological. Yeah. Um, it's multifactorial and it's really, really complex. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of content today, haven't we? Mm. I don't think that we have necessarily come to a definitive answer. And I don't think this is the kind of topic that you can come to a definitive answer. I think one thing that we can say there is using the term safety when you're talking about simulation, you should probably exercise some caution when you use it. <laughs> Completely agree with that. Yeah, you should definitely use a little bit of caution when using that. And, you know, when you're running simulation in your teams and in your department and in your, you know, setting, having a conversation about some of the perhaps unintended or latent risks that might be inherent in this safer uh, pedagogical approach would be well worth your while. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think safety and simulation means. And again, if there's anything that you think that we've missed, please pop them in the comments below. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast, uh, Safety in Simulation. We hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks very much for watching. Bye-bye.